had Dan read the whole chapter because there just wasn't this little nub in there you could pull out. It was just, it was too long. So um, I hope you don't mind if we read scripture in church. Everybody okay with that? I think that's a good problem to have. Uh, we want to invite our children to Children's Church if you care to head out the back and your teacher will meet you. Just a place where kids can learn in a more age-appropriate setting. And uh, while they're going, let me uh, open us in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we just sang, you are worth it all. And I pray and ask and plead, would you convince us of that? Lord, would your, our own words ring in our ears and remind us, Lord, that you are worth it all, all that comes our way, all that you call us to. Lord, that we would press on to the higher calling to know you better and that you would be worth everything we give up. Uh, Lord, have mercy on us and, and, and strengthen your church, we pray. Lord, I want to lift up uh, Berean Fellowship in, in Palmdale and ask that you would be with them this morning as they're gathered to worship. Lord, that uh, the word of God would be preached clearly and carefully by uh, Pastor Darrell, that he would be leading the congregation to see in the scriptures the beauty of Jesus Christ. And Lord, uh, Darrell's asked me to pray especially, uh, and I pray this for them, and I also want to pray it for us, Lord, that we would understand what it means that we have been saved. Lord, that the, the power of the grace of God in sparing us from eternal damnation, Lord, that we wouldn't take that for granted, that we wouldn't think small things of it. Lord, that we would remember that we have been pardoned by the blood of Jesus Christ at a terrible cost. And Lord, would you remind them and strengthen them in that trust and that hope so that they're freed from thinking their works will make you happy with them, so that they may do them with a cheerfulness of heart, with joy and gladness as they serve you. And Lord, would we do the same thing here? Lord, I pray that you would now use your word as we study together, as we look into what you have to say. Lord, would you use your word to teach us those truths, to remind us, to show us. But Lord, I pray that what we would see this morning is your faithfulness throughout the generations. Lord, you have proven yourself over and over and over again, steadfastly committed to your people. And may we see and believe that this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so where we're at with Joseph now is we are coming in chapter 40 to the lowest point in his life. This is as bad as it gets. Um, and uh, this morning, uh, we hear another set of two, um, two dreams. You remember how the story started is there were two dreams. Um, that uh, Joseph had two dreams and he told his brothers and his brothers got pretty angry about it. And I said that dreams kind of frame the story. So this week we're going to see two new dreams, and then next week two more. So they come in clumps, and, uh, and they're kind of different. So this, this morning we're going to look at these dreams in prison and see what this has to say for us. Where are we going with this? So first of all, um, if you heard at the beginning, it said that, um, he, that he was put in the custody in the house of the captain of the guard. He was put in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. You remember who the captain of the guard was? Potiphar. And at the end of last chapter, um, it, it says, as soon as his master heard these words that his wife had spoken to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master, that's Potiphar, took him and put him in the prison, where the, uh, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But it says that they were in the house 
of the captain of the guard. And it says that the captain of the guard put Joseph in charge of these two new prisoners. And so there's this, there's this kind of question that comes up when you look at this, where are they <laughs> exactly? I always think of, you know, like they're in prison, right? So they're out at 60th Street and, and I, right? Not in my neighborhood. But I think what's going on here is, is you get these two very important people who come from Pharaoh's court, the cupbearer and the chief baker. And when Pharaoh puts them in jail, Pharaoh puts them in jail where his prisoners go. And so that's what he says here is Joseph was thrown into the prison where Pharaoh's prisoners go because that was the prison that the captain of the guard ran. So that's what's going on is the captain of the guard, and it may be Potiphar at this point, it may be somebody else. He's the one who's in charge of Pharaoh's prison, and he's the one who takes care of it. And it, it sounds like it may even be on the same property as his house. I doubt that he lives in the prison. <laughs> he, he is a high muckety-muck official in Pharaoh's uh, um, retinue, and I, I don't think he lives there, but that is under his, his, um, his command. So I just want to answer that question real quick is where are they? They're in prison. Now, when I thought of this, I thought, wow, they must be in really nice, nice prison, right? Uh, the, you ever see the pictures of some of those low security prisons? The state of Illinois has a wonderful retirement program for their governors. They've imprisoned the last two. And when they go to prison, I've seen pictures of the prison they're in. It looks almost country club-like. And I thought, well, you know, that's probably what's going on here, right? Uh, no. <laughs> this idea of a low security prison that feels kind of country club is unique to us. We make this kind of goofy stuff up so that we throw governors into places like that instead of to jail. Jail in these days was a bad place. As a matter of fact, in the middle of the story, Joseph tells the cupbearer, hey, remember me and get me out of this pit. So it's not like they just had a room in, in the captain of the guard's house. They're in a pit. This is a bad place to be. This is, this is not a, a place of comfort and, and luxury. You've angered Pharaoh. You've done something to tick off Pharaoh. And so you are in a bad place and you're not going to do well there. So that, that's just wanted to clear that up is, is get in your mind. These guys are not in some... Um, cush place. This is a hole in the ground, probably literally, and, and that's where they've been thrown. So what happens is, I'll just kind of summarize the story. So what I want to look at is, is, is at the beginning of the story here, there's something that's repeated, and I think it's important. And then when, once we looked at that, we'll look at the dreams, and then finally we'll come to, to the end and we'll consider Joseph. Okay, so something that's repeated. Um, in that first section, Moses almost writes in a kind of clumsy fashion. He says in verse uh, 2, And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, his chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody um, in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And then he mentions again, they continued in custody for some time. And then in verse 5 he says, Who can find them in prison? <laughs> so in those first five verses, every time he mentions those two guys, he mentions, oh, by the way, they're in prison. In case you forgot that, in case you missed that. So you could look at this and go, well, this is just clumsy editing. And, and you know, the editor didn't delete these repeated refrains. Um, that's not how scripture works. Uh, writing stuff down is, is, is expensive. It takes money to produce paper and stuff back then. It's pretty cheap now, but then it was expensive. So I've said this before. When something's repeated in the Bible, especially in a short scope like that, it's important. 
There's something really significant going on here. So what is this something that's repeated is these guys are in prison. And everybody in the congregation said, yeah. But don't forget who Moses is writing to. Moses is writing this letter to people who for 400 years were slaves in Egypt. They were the bottom rung of Egyptian society. And so whenever they looked to the palace, whenever they looked to Pharaoh's court, they saw people in positions of power and opulence, of, of favor with the richest, most powerful man in the land. And really at that time, King, Egypt was a kingdom of the world. So these are people who were in a position of huge authority, huge privilege. And so Moses is telling the, Egypt, or the uh, Israelites, look, you guys, they were in prison. No, really, they were in prison. They, they were actually imprisoned. And what he's telling them is, this is what happens in Egyptian society, is even the high and lofty, even the most powerful and most privileged can quite easily wind up in a position of being in, in prison. He, he has to remind them, because remember the Israelites, as they come out of Egypt, they're thinking, you know, it wasn't so bad back there. You know, we were, we were slaves, but hey, there was food. And maybe we should go back there. And where's the water? And, you know, those kind of things. So he's trying to remind them, you guys, don't forget, you're not inherently slaves. And if you look back to Egypt and you think everything in Egypt was just so wonderful, it really wasn't. Powerful, rich, important people could be easily thrown into prison like that. Was there a trial for these two? Were they ever put on, on trial for what they had done? Nope. Got on Pharaoh's bad side, bam, you're out of here. There's no justice in any of this. It's so fickle. It turns on somebody's opinion, and bam, you're out. One minute you're the top dog, the next thing you're, you're out of the court. And so what Moses, I think, is trying to do by repeating that rephrase, that refrain, they were in custody, where they were in custody, they were in prison, is he's reminding them, this is what Egyptian society is like. You don't really want to return to that. You don't want to go back to that kind of a society where you could be on the in on one minute and on the out the next and thrown into jail. It's that bad. So he's reminding them of the injustice of that system and that that's not what they want to return to. Now think about what comes next for Israel. We're in this gap between the, exi or the uh, exodus where they've left Egypt, but they haven't arrived in their own home country yet and the law is just beginning to be written. <laughs> What will happen for Israel in the future, the way justice will be administered there, is there will be a king eventually, and the king will have a very specific role. But who administers the law within the country? It is not the king. It's not even the king's tribe. It's the priests. The tribe of Levi will administer the law. So if the king gets upset at somebody and goes, I don't like you anymore, you're in jail, the priests can step in and say, sir, that's not how this works. So what, what you have is in the coming law, you won't get this kind of arbitrary punishment. God is going to, through the law, regulate some form of justice to the people so that there isn't the power where one man can just throw anybody he wants in jail. Now, let's be honest, when you get to the kings, that's what's going on. They start doing that anyway, but it's not supposed to work that way. There's supposed to be a division of power so that this kind of thing doesn't happen. So this is what Israel's looking at, is they're, they're seeing this, this, um, this abuse of authority, this abuse of power. What does that have to do with us? Well, one of the things I think it warns us is any worldly power can wind up doing the same thing. 
any worldly power can wind up being so arbitrary, and you could be part of the in crowd one moment and on the outs the next. And so as God's people, we're expected to kind of stand back and look at this and say, well, as long as the system is operating, that's good, but don't put your hope in the system. Um, evangelicals were the, all the rage in the 1980s politically, and now we're the guys that they're throwing darts at. So it, it's nothing surprising. This is how political life turns. Is it just it wheels about and it'll consume its own in, in a heartbeat. So as Israel is not supposed to be looking to Egypt and going, that's what we want to go back to, that's, that's where we're at, folks, is we live in an imperfect system. Um, I think our founding fathers were wise to come up with a division of powers, this threefold division of power, because we know people are basically bad. So we keep them at, at war with each other. But even in this imperfect system, it's not going to be great for us. This is not where our hope is. This is not where our home is. We are part of a kingdom. We're, we're looking forward to our king to return. So as wonderful as democracy is, God bless it. May it work. Don't put your hope in it working. Don't be surprised when it lets you down, when it turns on you in a heartbeat, because that's exactly what happened to the, the cupbearer and the chief baker, is they were on the inside. You know, those positions were close to the, the pharaoh. They touched the pharaoh. He trusted them with his food. You remember what Potiphar said? Joseph, you're in charge of everything in my house, equal to me, you don't have to ask me about anything, I'll take care of my food, thank you very much. He didn't want him to poison him. These guys are up with even more powerful than Potiphar. They're up with Pharaoh, and they are handing him food. That is personal, intimate closeness to this seat of power. And in a heartbeat, that seat of power turned against him and threw him out. It says that they sinned against him. That's what the, the word actually is. It says some offense. The, the Hebrew word is actually sinned. They sinned against Pharaoh. But basically, that's what it means is they offended him in some way. So who knows what they did? It's not even important. Moses blows past that. Don't worry about it. That's not the important part. The part is one day they were on his side, the next they're in prison. So that's that first part. The reason that Moses repeats it is because we need to see that. We need to have that burned into our brains is this worldly system will turn on you at some point. It will work for you at one point and it will turn against you at another. It's the way a fallen, broken government works. Our hope is in a kingdom that one day Jesus will return and he will establish his kingdom on this earth and he will rule with perfect, absolute, uncorrupted justice. And until then, we wind up, until then we wind up with things like this, arbitrary. It, it is applied in, in diverse ways. Some people get away with it, some people don't. So governors wind up in country club jails, whereas some poor guy who steals $100 worth of groceries because his family's starving, gets 10 years in a real prison. It's, a, it's not just. Our system is broke. It's not just. And that just isn't surprising. We should work for justice. We should work for a system that is. But I think what Moses is trying to show us here is this is the way of man. It, it just doesn't function well. It becomes arbitrary at some point. So that's the something that's repeated. Now let's take a look at the dreams. Um, uh, these two guys come to prison. They continued there in custody for some time, is what it says at the end of verse 4. Um, so it's not like they showed up that night and then they're out three days later. They get thrown in jail. They're there for some time. 
And then one night they both dream at the same time. So they both have dreams, and these dreams trouble them greatly. They're, they're, they're not just dreams like you have a dream and you wake up and, and, you know, I remember parts of it and you tell your spouse and they go, I have no idea what you're talking about, but that's nice. Because you can't explain it. There, there were so many things going on. These dreams are different. There's something strong and clear and arresting about them. So when Joseph comes in to check on them, they're troubled. He can see it on their face. They are worried about something. This is really bothering him. And so Joseph asks them, why are your face downcast? My job is to keep you guys comfortable, to take care of you while you're in jail. Why are you upset? What can I do to help you? And so they say, well, we both had dreams and there's nobody here to interpret them. As part of the, the Pharaoh's court, they would have access to the magicians, to the soothsayers. And those were the experts in dream interpretation. So they could, if this had happened outside when they were still in Pharaoh's court, they could go to a, to a magician and say, hey, I had this dream and he would, I don't know, rattle bones or, you know, pour drinks or feel goat guts or something and come up with an answer for him and say, this is what it means. And they would all be impressed. But they're distressed because, number one, they've had these dreams that they know are prophetic and there's nobody there to interpret them. They, they don't have their normal support structure. And so Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God, not to soothsayers, not to magicians. Interpretations belong to God. And they says, please tell them to me. Do you see what he just said? God is the one who will interpret it. Tell me and I'll see if I can give you an answer. But what he's saying, what he's affirming is this is not from me. This is from God. So just a little side note here. If somebody tells you they have the gift of dream interpretation, they don't. There's no such thing. There are two times in the Bible when dreams are given and interpreted. This is one. Joseph's story happens here and with Pharaoh. The other one is with Daniel. When, when the king has a, a dream, he goes to Daniel and Daniel interprets it him. So if somebody tells you they have the gift of dream interpretation, tell them to go check into the White House because God speaks to those in power through dreams like that, if we're looking at it biblically. So when, if you go through Barnes & Noble and you wander by the metaphysics section or the paranormal section or something, you'll see a book in there on, on dream interpretation, the Encyclopedia of Dream Interpretation. This is not how dreams work. There are not, God doesn't use universal signs amongst all people in all cultures and all ways to tell them something through a dream. Sometimes a dream is just a dream. Sometimes it's just your subconscious chewing on something. So don't, don't get caught up in the idea that somebody is going to come and interpret a dream for you and tell you the future. Um, sometimes a dream is just a dream. <laughs> and, and that's just the way they work. But in this case, this is like Joseph's dreams. Remember I said there were prophetic dreams that Joseph had, and he knew it. That's why he told his brothers. There is something unique about these dreams. And so Joseph says, please tell me your dream. So we get the dream in two sets. The first one is the cupbearer, and then there's Joseph's response, and then the second dream. And I don't want to go through all the details of the dream. Basically what happens is he sees something to do with his old job, right? This, this three vines, and suddenly they're in bloom, and then suddenly there are grapes, and he squeezed the grapes, and suddenly they go, the grape juice goes into the cup, and he hands it to Pharaoh. There's this sense of urgency in this dream. It goes really fast. And so he asked Joseph, what does this mean? And Joseph explains to him, in three days, 
Pharaoh is going to lift your head and restore you to... In other words, you're going back to work in three days. Now, why are three branches three days? Why aren't three branches three years or three months? Because interpretations belong to God. That's why three branches are three days. That's why. So this is tremendous news for the cupbearer. Hey, dude, you got your job back. And um, Joseph says something else. I'll come back to that in the end. So when the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I had a dream also. So, hey, this is good news. If he got his job back, maybe this will work for me. And the chief baker gets, explains to his dream. I had three baskets on my head, and in the top were all these baked goods. In other words, my job, right? Um, and there were birds eating out of it. And so Joseph, this is almost cruel because he, he starts his response with the exact seven, same seven words in Hebrew. Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. He, 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 it, it, it's, I think Moses is, is maybe writing this in kind of a, a, a fun way, but basically he says the exact same thing to both men. And so the chief baker goes into it with the expectation of, oh, good, good news for me, until he gets to the from you. He is going to lift your head off of your shoulders, and you're going to be killed in three days. So not such good news for you. And then the, the, the section on the dreams ends on the third day when it was the Pharaoh's birthday. He made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of his cupbearer and his baker among his servants. He restored his cupbearer and he hung the chief baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. So why is the baker in this story? Why, why bring up the baker? Why do we have to have that part of the story? Couldn't we just get the good news? There were two that came, and, and Joseph interpreted this one dream. Well, maybe it's to show the accuracy of Ju, Ju, uh, Joseph's interpretation. He got both of them exactly right. Three days. Both of them wind up exactly the way he, he prophesied it. So perhaps that's why Moses included it. Um, another po po possibility, and I think this is probably the stronger case, is to show the cruelty of Pharaoh. Just as Pharaoh was fickle in getting mad at him and throwing him in jail, he's now fickle in saying, well, you're back and you're dead. It shows the, the calloused, uncaring nature of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is somebody to be feared. He's not your savior. He's not your deliverer. He's not the one who's going to you know, set everything right. He can arbitrarily choose to elevate one and kill another. And, and so they're supposed to be afraid of this. This is not pictured as he's a good guy. And then the reason that that's important is I think what Moses is wanting us to remember at this point is Joseph's really in danger. Being in prison, he's not secured. It's not like he's been sequestered and, and cut off and put on his own. He's in actual mortal danger. He could be executed at any moment. If suddenly Pharaoh says, hey, I want to throw 40 people in prison, and they say, well, sorry, sir, we don't have enough room. Well, start lopping off heads and make room. Joseph could be gone. Because Pharaoh's that arbitrary. Pharaoh doesn't have the view of humanity that we have. We would say people are worthy to be cared for. They're not, they're not chattel you just chop up whenever you want. Pharaoh doesn't have that same worldview. I'm Pharaoh. I do what I want. Execute him. So I think that's why the baker is there is to, to remind us, to, to kind of set before us, this is a scary situation. This is a bad dude. 
This is really troubling stuff. So now let's take a look at Joseph in the middle of all this, because the, the, the chapter ends, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And what that's referring back to is after Joseph gives the cupbearer his interpretation, and the cupbearer is like, yes. Joseph says, um, only remember me when it's well with you, and, and please do this kindness to me to mention to Pharaoh, and so to get me out of this house. For I have indeed been stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So that's that last part, is Joseph is saying, please, cupbearer, remember me as you go. Get me out of here. Speak to Pharaoh. So what that kind of raised with me is, why do good people suffer? What has Joseph done wrong up to this point? He's just been Joseph. He hasn't extorted anybody, especially after uh, chapter 38 with Judah. We saw exactly how rotten Judah could be. Joseph is, is in comparison to that, he's nothing like that. So this raises the questions, why do the unrighteous or why do the righteous suffer? Why does a good man like Joseph, who has this tremendous promise of God that he will be a blessing to his brothers, why do they suffer? Why is it fair for Joseph? Let's say for a second, well, God wanted him to get into Egypt so that he could save the world during the famine. Okay. Why did he sell him in slavery to Potiphar and not to Pharaoh? That way when Pharaoh had the dream, he could have just popped up and said, yo, boss, got it. Here's what's going on. And it would have had the same net effect, right? There's a reason, apparently, that God sent him between being kidnapped and sold to the Ishmaelites and being in Pharaoh's court, sent him to jail, sent him to this low point. And he sends, them, he sends him there first. And, and so why do good people go through this? Why do you go through this? Can't you think of a thousand shortcut paths that you could have taken had God willed it that way? This is something that's called a theodicy. And a theodicy is this question of why God does what he does, explaining to people why God does what he does. And one of the theodicies is this question of why do the righteous suffer? Um, one of the interesting things about that question is God doesn't shy away from it. God doesn't run from that question. God doesn't hide from that question. As a matter of fact, through the scriptures, he often brings it up himself. He'll raise that question. It's a re repeating refrain. It's like an echo throughout Psalms. Why is it that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? It comes up over and over again in the Psalms. In the New Testament, we hear about the church being persecuted, being executed. And, and God's not shy from these things. He doesn't, he doesn't back off and say, well, don't ask that question. If people who ask that, that's, I created hell for people who ask that question. It's like, that, that's not where he goes with it. Instead, he leads right into it and he asks us to engage with that question. So what I want to offer is, is just some insights into ways to begin to process that or think about through that question is, why is my life not perfect or not the way I want it to be right now? Why am I suffering? Why do other people suffer? Um, there's a book that Tim Keller wrote called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And in it, he offers, he, he's explaining theodicy and he's kind of picking one apart. And in the end, he says, um, it's hard to imagine the development of virtues such as courage, humility, 
self-control, and faithfulness, if every good deed was immediately rewarded and every bad deed immediately punished. So the unfairness and difficulty of life in this world is a means by which we grow into something more than behaviorally conditioned animals. In other words, there's something unique about humanity. We have some aspect of free will that animals lack. Animals, you can condition them to do really interesting things. I watched a video of a parrot sorting out colored circles and getting them exactly right. That, that parrot's been conditioned to do that. God doesn't want conditioned people to do exactly what he wants them to do. He wants full-formed persons, body and soul, to be seeking after him, to look after him. And so what Keller says is this idea of theodicy is that God could use these horrible situations that people go through in order to develop in them courage, humility, self-control, to foster in them these things. And that's kind of the New Testament picture of gold tested by fire. And the idea of gold tested by fire is you put gold in this, this, this little bucket and you heat it up until it's so hot it's molten and all the goop floats up to the top. And then you scrape that goop off and what you're left with is this pure gold or this pure silver. And so that's the idea behind this theodicy is it, it, it's possible that God is distilling in us these good virtues that he wants and scraping off the bad ones. So imagine Joseph, remember where Joseph is heading. He's on the road to being number two in all of Egypt. And not only number two in all of Egypt, but soon the entire world, known world at that time, is going to fall around them, and Egypt is going to be the place. He's going to have food that he will distribute to the nations to keep people alive. Now, we don't know who Joseph is at this point. You know, we, we, we haven't seen him really in, in much depth, much detail, just a couple of verses. And the number of years that are passing here are pretty big. We're, we're taking big steps. What if instead of going to prison first, Joseph went right into Pharaoh's role and then turned into an absolute beast because he had all this power and all this authority and now he's got all the food in the world. And boy, you come to me, you're going to pay. This is going to be big. And he's, he's this selfish, self-centered person by that point. Wouldn't go into prison to work some of that out, fit into God's plan to say, I'm going to use Joseph to save the world. That's, that's the idea behind this, that God might use difficulty in people's life to refine them, to fine-tune them, to bring them to a point where they can actually perform well in the role that they're called into. Now, this is not just something like made up whole cloth out of nothing. Um, Romans chapter 5, I think, speaks along these lines. So listen to this. Romans 5 says that not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So we rejoice in our suffering. We could say with Joseph, we could sit in the cell with Joseph and say, we rejoice in our suffering because our suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces hope. And hope doesn't disappoint. So that, that's a, a new, new Testament. That's a, that's a biblical concept that that struggling, that the righteous suffering is to lead them to improve character, to be more godly, to trust God more. Now, Keller goes on. After this, and he, he says there's a problem with this, though. There's, there's some objections. 
says, first, the exp the, this explanation suffers from some glaring weaknesses. First, pain and evil do not appear to be distributed according to the need for growth in those virtues. In other words, there are people who really, really need to suffer. In other words, they really need to grow in these virtues, and they're just comfortable as anything. That's, that's what David says in the Psalms. Why do the righteous, or why do the wicked prosper? Lord, this person really needs some character, and you're, you're letting them prosper and just be happy in all that they have. So that's the first problem with this explanation. And then he goes on, he says, the second answer does not seem to uh, speak to or account for the suffering of little children or infants, infants who die in pain. So it's, it, the answer is not robust enough to incorporate all of this. Um, but I think it begins to get at, when we talk about within God's people, I think it begins to get at an answer for why do the righteous suffer, is God is doing something. So I want to offer th uh, three answers to that question. Three, three ways to think about this question. And the first thing, and the most important thing that you can do, is you can just admit, I don't know. If somebody comes to you and says, why did so-and-so suffer this way, and, and they were so nice, and they were the best person in the world, and they suffered horribly, and then they died, why? The best and perfect right answer right off the bat often is, I really don't know is to feel for this person. This is a real experience that somebody's having. They're honestly hurting because somebody has suffered that they know. And for you to look at them and offer flip answers about this, that, and the other, and just trust God and everything's great, can really hurt their feelings. So what scripture says is rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. So the first response when you talk to somebody and they say, why, is I don't know. Because you don't know, you don't have in scripture all the right answers for every individual person who has ever suffered. And so the first response to, to why do the righteous suffer is don't know and just admit it. And when somebody's hurting, just hurt with them. So if we're sitting in prison with Joseph, we don't want to slug him on the shoulder and go, oh, God's got your back. When he says, why is this happening to me? I haven't done anything. The right answer is to slip your arm around Joseph's shoulder and say, I know, man, it's wrong. There is something definitely broke here. And it's true, and it's sympathetic, and you can be with them in that moment. But you don't want to leave it there. You don't want to leave it with, well, you know, I don't know. I guess bad stuff happens. So the second thing is that we have to remember God is accomplishing something in these things. God's not forgotten somebody. He hasn't overlooked a thing. And what the problem is, is when we say, why does so-and-so suffer? We're looking for one answer. We're looking for, well, God is doing this thing in them. So, like I was saying, that, that, that answer to that theodicy is, well, God is developing character in this person. He's developing in them virtues and strengths that they never knew they could ever have. That's true, but what about an infant who has leukemia and dies screaming? Was character developed in them? That's what I mean. The first answer is, I don't know. The second answer is, surely God has a purpose in this. And when God does one thing, he isn't accomplishing one single purpose. He understands everything that happens. And so when he accomplishes one thing, it has a ripple effect and it spreads out across a wide area. So one of his events can have the intended consequence of 10,000 different ones. 
because he understands how all those things fit together. He understands how every possible contingency could come out. And so he picks exactly the right thing at the right time. In this fallen and broken world filled with sin, he figures how to, he, he knows how to accomplish exactly the right purpose at the right time. So why did so-and-so die? I have no idea, but I believe God has a purpose in it. I can't discern it. I can't figure it out, but I believe God has a purpose. There's something that he's accomplishing here. So the alternative to this is the materialist view, which says there is no purpose in the universe. You're just a bag of chemicals that wound up in the condition you're in, bumping off of each other, and that's it. Um, so when you ask a materialist, why is there suffering in the world? The answer is, I don't know, just is, too bad. You can offer no compassion in that. So when materialists say, well, it's wrong, humans have rights and we have to treat people with respect, really, why? Why do we have to do that? If there's no God, no purpose, then why have any compassion or anything? It's, it's a heartless answer. Fortunately, most, most atheists, most materialists won't go to that heartless answer. They'll find some comfortable place before they get there. Um, I had a discussion online with an um, uh, atheist, materialist, philosopher guy, and I brought up the problem of evil, and I said, you know, he was saying, well, you know, this is really a problem. I said, well, before you talk to me about the problem of evil, I'd like for you to define evil for me. Why is something evil? And what I'm thinking is, what he's going to say is, it's evil because it's wrong and it should never happen, to which I reply, why? And what you'll eventually get to is, well, I just don't like it. Okay, well, it's not evil then. You just don't like it. Whereas for the theist, we can say it's evil because it's contrary to God's plan. And it's wrong, and, and it, it opposes who God is. This gentleman said, well, I don't have a problem of evil. I said, why is that? He said, because I don't believe in evil. I said, so when, when somebody murders somebody, he goes, I don't think that's right, and I don't like it. But I don't call it evil because I don't have this eternal standard to say this evil. The problem of evil exists for you theists because you have a God who's not taking care of that. So it's not my problem. I was like, well, that's at least honest, if not brutal. Because what it says is, I don't think there should be murder because I don't like murder. But somebody else could come up and go and say, well, you know, I think there should be murder because I really enjoy murder. So pick your, pick your poison. Which one are you going to go with? But for us, we wind up with the problem of evil because we say, no, you, there should not be murder because murder is wrong because God created people in his image because they have inherent dignity because he has said you will not murder people. So then the question is, why is there murder? And, and the answer to that is complicated is the problem. Um, by the way, the, this problem of evil is not new. It's not something that, that atheists just figured out within the last 20 years. David Hume in the 1600s brought it up. Before David Hume, there was a philosopher whose name I'm not even going to try to pronounce, who brought up the question in, uh, I think it was 580 BC. So this has been a problem that's been around for a while, okay? So when God does something, he is doing more than just the one thing. So think about Job. Job is righteous. It's declared in the Bible, Job is righteous. He, he sacrificed for his children because he was afraid they may have done something wrong. He is a righteous man. And God says, Satan, you checked out Job. And Satan says, well, yeah, of course he's good to you. You're good to him. 
Let me have at him for a little bit. So Job suffers. And the long section of Job is him asking, why is this, why is this horrible thing happening to me? And if you're reading carefully, you should be agreeing with Job. Why is this happening to him? He's done nothing wrong. But when God steps in to answer, it's not the answer Job expected. Job is looking for one answer. I did nothing wrong. Why did you do this to me? Why is this happening to me? The answer he gets is chapters 38 through 41. And it's not going, God going, shut up, you little puny thing. It's God saying, Job, you're looking for one tiny answer in a universe of answers. Look at all of the things that I'm doing all at the same time. All of these things that are going on. The calf, the, 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 um, the goat goes into calving. They have their children at this specific time because I have ordained it. There is snow waiting to fall because I'm holding on to it. There are all of these other nations that have risen. All these things that are going on. Job, you fit into this complex array of things that I'm accomplishing. So why do you suffer? Because all of these other things are going on as well. So you, you're looking for one particular answer, and what I'm telling you is there's myriads of answers why you suffer. There's so many things that I'm accomplishing all at the same time. It's not that I've overlooked you. I haven't forgotten you. I'm doing so much more than just Job. I'm doing everything. So that second answer is God is accomplishing myriad things. We can't even imagine all the things that he's doing except for this little bit of this little slice of my life. Imagine that little slice of your life multiplied across everybody who's ever existed and he's accomplishing things through there. So, first of all, I don't know why God allows suffering. Second of all, God allows suffering for purpose. He's doing something. We just can't necessarily tell exactly what it is every time. One of the blessings is God invented time as well as everything else. So we may not know in this instance, but across time, we begin to see more and more of things that he's accomplished. And sometimes, if we're very blessed, God will show us, this is why I was accomplishing those things in you. This is what I was doing in you, but you couldn't tell it at the time. And so then the third response is that what we know from Scripture is God is good. God is good. He is not the author of evil. He's not inventing evil and throwing it into your life in order to crush you. He is accomplishing his good purposes. He's working toward an end where sin and death and hell are done away with, where the heavens and the earth are consumed and rebuilt and we will physically dwell here freed from sin, freed from decay, free from chaos. How he gets us from here to there is difficult to see, but we know that he's doing it because God is good. Now, notice I did not start with God is good. If somebody is hurting and they're genuinely sorrowful, there's something horrible that's happened in their life, to walk up and say God is good is not necessarily the best place to start. Because what they're feeling at that instant is, no, he's really not. And I'd like to know what's going on. So it can come across as patronizing to say God is good. Instead, start with I don't know. Work through, I, I, he, he has thousands of purposes. And then if they're in a good place, then you can get to say, in the midst of all of this, God is still good. He is still working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called to his, according to his purpose. But for heaven's sake, don't start there when you're counseling somebody else. You might start there when you are the one who's suffering. 
you might have to start with you with, I hate this. I don't know what's going on, but in the midst of it, I know God is good. And so when I call out to him, I know that I'm calling out to a loving father who cares for me. So start with God is good for yourself. With others, start with, I don't know, and let me sit with you for a while. And so this is the question of why do the righteous suffer? And this, again, is on the minds of the Israelites as they're led out of Egypt. Because what Moses is about to break to them is you're not, you weren't captured slaves who were dragged into Egypt. You went in as guests of Pharaoh. You were big shots. People celebrated when you walked into Egypt. So when they get to that point, they're saying, well, then why are we slaves now? How could that be right? Why would God lead us into Egypt and then turn us into slaves? Is God good? Is God doing something here? And that's why Moses is preparing them through this story about Joseph, why we get this really clear picture of where Joseph goes, rather than just cutting the story short and jumping him into uh, Pharaoh's court. Is we need to understand how God is working through all of these intricate and wild ways that we can't possibly conceive to bring about a good end. So why does the church in the world suffer? I just read recently, it's been confirmed yet again, the most persecuted religion in all of the world is Christianity. Above and beyond any other religion, the most persecuted is Christianity. And so we might look to God, if you're looking more globally than just this really nice building, you might ask, God, why do the righteous suffer? Why do you people suffer like that? It's the same question. Is God is accomplishing things in the world that we just can't understand. Yet he's good and he's leading us carefully and, and faithfully to the final destination. That's why endurance produces hope and hope doesn't disappoint. It's because our hope is not we're gonna get this world right. Our hope is God's gonna come and get this world right and we get to participate in it. So the, the uh, Israelites, why are we going through this hard time? Why were we in jail? Why were we um, uh, slaves for so long? Because God is leading you to a promised land. But he's got to get you there first. So this is why Joseph's story is important to not only Israel, but it's also important to the church. Is we have to remember that we are sojourners. That we are opposed. That we are, as God's people are going to have up times, praise the Lord for them, and horrible times. And can we still praise the Lord in the midst of that? That's Joseph for us. Next week, we're out of the pit. Joseph is now ascending. That may be, that's a good sermon title, isn't it? Joseph ascending. I kind of like that. Hope I remember it by the time I make it to the seat. So let's pray and uh, end our service. Lord, um, none of us here want suffering. We, we're not asking for it. We are not seeking it out. And yet, Lord, when it comes, we know that even suffering is on a leash that's in your hand. That persecution and trial, when it comes, will be under your metered control. And Lord, we pray that the promise Paul has made us in Romans 5, that suffering leads to endurance and endurance to character, character to hope, and hope doesn't disappoint. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful in the midst of all of those things to look for what it is that you're accomplishing because it's so many things, so many different things happening all at the same time. And Lord, I pray for those in our church body specifically who are suffering because of illness, uh, physical infirmity, difficulties, but also in our nation as this is a particularly bad flu year. 
um, Lord, you made this a particularly bad flu year. Um, you are accomplishing something in, uh, in myriad lives in different ways that we can't possibly see or understand because we only exist moment by moment. But you, Lord, see the beginning from the end. And so we pray for those who are suffering from illness in our body, in other churches, in our nation, that you would have mercy on them and lead them to your appointed end. And uh, Lord, may we um, never doubt your goodness in the midst of it all. May we see and acknowledge that you are kind and that you are accomplishing things. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Tim. <clears throat>